Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. This particular message this morning, I will tell you the story. This particular message this morning, as I was working on it yesterday in my office, and putting things together, I intended to cover a lot more than I'll cover this morning. But as I was working through, and I hope that this message speaks to you in the same way it did to me yesterday, I hit a certain part in this scripture uh, where I was through with the message. It was time to worship. Two of those songs were what I came in here to say to God yesterday. To worship. Wow, I could have an altar call and be the only one at the front right now and be perfectly tickled with it, but I won't. How about take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in the 22nd verse. Once you have found the 22nd verse of Acts chapter 2, if you'll stand with me. And let's read part of this powerful sermon we started on last week, the sermon of Peter after the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2 says this, starting in the 22nd verse. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by your lawless hands, have crucified and put to death him who God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by It will stop there this morning. Father, today I thank you so much. I thank you so much for your providence in our lives, for your sovereignty over all things, for Father, how you knit things together, even in our worship of you. And this morning, Father, I ask that you do as only you can do and that you make very little of me and very much of you as we listen to your word this morning. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, you know, we started a a part of Acts here that I've entitled the messages from this preaching leads to persuasion. Uh, It's one of the most beautiful passages of scripture, especially when you put it in light of what it's coming off of and the fact that it is the first post-resurrection sermon preached. It's an awesome message. Last week we started looking at this sermon uh, of Peter's at the, after the day of Pentecost and we saw last week this example in the in the sermon, this example. And Peter was the focus of the example in the sermon. He was, you have to admit, he was the most unlikely. He was the most unlikely one to be the, the preacher. He, he had lived a life of dualism as we looked. He would in one moment be professing that Jesus Christ was the living Son of God and in the very next moment he would be rebuking Jesus for doing that which God had, had called him to do. And in one moment he'd be putting all of his faith in Jesus Christ and asking to step out on the water. And in the very next moment his attention had turned to the world and he had sunk. And there was this life of dualism in, in Peter. Yet here he stands before this, this crowd gathered and, and he's about to preach. And, and, and Peter knew, Peter knew as we should know that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. He experienced that grace even as we looked at last week, right in the trials of Jesus. 
Right as he was part of that, as he as he was there, he he denied he denied Jesus when he was questioned about his allegiance or his his, his part of Jesus' ministry or his association with him. Yet yet upon Jesus' appearance after his resurrection, after Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he met Peter on the beach, if you remember, and he restored him. That story is told in John chapter fifteen, or yeah, John. It, it tells the story of, of Peter being restored. Jesus looks at Peter after he meets him on the beach and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me? What a question. What a question. Peter, Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Three times Peter was asked this question. Three times Peter replied that he loved him. The dots from just a few days earlier. Three times Peter was asked, aren't you one of them? Peter says, no, no, not I. No, not I. One of the gospels says that after he denied him the third time, he looked and Jesus was staring at him. Jesus knew this moment on the beach was going to come. He restored Peter and he he, he tells Peter at the, at the end of that restoration, he says, Peter, here, here's what I need you to do. I need you to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then feed my sheep. <laughs> Peter took to heart, I believe, what Jesus had told him. And here he starts this process of feeding the lambs and tending the sheep and feeding the sheep because Jesus had restored him to the faith. And, and he refocused, he refocused Peter's attention on who Jesus is. <laughs> And what it is that Jesus had for him to do. He, he restored and refocused him. That's, a, that's what leads to the second example. The, the second example from last week. And that was the example of the Holy Spirit coming. This Holy Spirit came and it filled him. And, and, and the Spirit that came, came in response to, to the prophetic message. And what Jesus had even promised. That there would be one that would come as he left. The day of Pentecost had been a fulfillment of prophecy. And a fulfillment of a promise made by Jesus. And we're coming right off of that day of Pentecost. And here stands Peter. Peter, this dualism Peter that had been restored by Christ on the beach. And here he stands up in their, their midst. And, and what happened and what is about to happen is an example of what God has done and what God is doing. See, God, as it's written by Paul, and I believe it's 1 Corinthians, somewhere in that first uh, chapter towards the end of it, he says, He has chosen the foolish things, the foolish things of the world to put the shame, the wise he says he's even chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. <laughs> and you would have to say, in Peter we see weakness. In Peter we see foolishness. And he had chosen him to set aside those things of, of the world that says are the right things. And, and Peter being the least likely, he was chosen by God. He was chosen by God. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it was to deliver the word of God and to continue that which Christ had started. He was to continue that which Christ was started, which was to seek and to save the lost. And the message to us last week was, we're chosen to do the same. And there's no excuse. There is no excuse for not doing what we're chosen to do. Because God himself said he chooses the foolish things and he chooses the weak things. There is no excuse. Peter removes that excuse for us. 
removes the excuse that we're not the right ones. He removes the excuse that we're not the best choice. He removes the excuse that we're not called. (laughs) Because Jesus looked down through the centuries at all those who would say, I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. And he says, go and tell the world. (laughs) Go and tell the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's made that command to us. No, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are called to be the example of him to the world. There's no question. How are we to be that example? What are we to tell the world? See, that brings us to the second point in the message of preaching leads to persuasion. And the second point is this. It's the exposition of the gospel message. It's the exposition of the gospel message. What does it mean to exposit a message? It means to explain. It means to expose what the scripture says. It's beautiful what Peter does here. I've often been asked, Pastor, why do you use so much scripture whenever you preach? I'll tell you why. Because Peter's example. The first time that he stood to preach, the first time post-resurrection, there was a man that stood in the pulpit to preach the message. What did he do? He said, thus says the Lord. If I ever stand and says, thus says Roger, I hope you go to the restaurant early and beat the Methodists and you talk about me. Because you should. See, we should be saying, thus says the Lord. And that's what Peter stands up to do. He starts his exposition of the gospel in the exact same place, the exact same place that we are to start. He focuses his entire presentation on one thing. Look at Acts 2.22 with me. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Hear these words. What are the words? What are the words that Peter's about to preach? What is it that he has to say that's so important that they're to stop? That they're to stop what they're doing and listen? See, Peter makes a great point about our responsibility in the presence of the preaching of God's word. It's not a time to get a nap. It's not a time to make a list of the things that you don't like about the pastor or the church. It's not a time to look and see, I wonder if my neighbor's getting anything out of this. No. It's a time to listen. When God's word is proclaimed, it is time to listen. He says, anytime the word of God is brought forth, you need to listen. And listen is more than hearing. Listen is more than hearing. As a matter of fact, I looked up the definition of listen. It says, listen is to give attention to a sound. And it says it is to take notice and act on what someone is saying. See, to take notice is hearing. To act on it makes it listening. What Peter's telling those gathered there is to hear what he's about to say because it's important, but also to act on what it is that they hear. Hearing without action is a waste of time. It is a waste of time. He starts by making sure that they know what he is about to say is worthy of hearing and that it requires action. He then gives the central focus of what it is he is about to say. He gives them the main character, so to speak, of the message. In that same 22nd verse where he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. See, whenever he stands to proclaim, Thus says the word, thus says the Lord, he starts with the word, Jesus Christ. His central focus of all he's about to say is going to have one character. There's only going to be one person that's in this scene, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. He starts with the one thing that they all agree on. I love it the way he does that, that Jesus was a man from a nondescript town called Nazareth. 
What a beautiful place to start. To, to us, this doesn't mean a whole lot. To us, it doesn't mean much. But to them, Nazareth was a place you wanted to pass through, not be from. <laughs> it was what I would call the armpit of the community. It wasn't the place that you put on your resume, I'm from Nazareth, you should look at me. No, it was the armpit of the community. Remember what was said about Jesus in relation to Nazareth? John 1.46, I believe it is, Nathaniel said this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? One of the ones that was handpicked by Jesus to be a part of the entourage, a part of the twelve, said, Nazareth? We're going to follow a guy from Nazareth? See, their whole mindset was that, that nothing good came out of Nazareth. It was not a place that you wanted to be from. But in Acts 2.22, we see computer, uh, Peter also continue on some common ground. When he said, Jesus of Nazareth, so he sets on something that they know. He continues on common ground when he says, A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles, wonders, and signs. See, he started with what they agreed upon, that Jesus was from Nazareth. He moved on to something that they apparently had witnessed. Peter knew. Peter knew that they had either been witness to or they had heard stories about what Jesus had done while he was here on this earth. He knew. He knew for those gathered, there had either been rumors spread and people had heard of the things that had happened or they had been eyewitnesses of those things that had happened. Maybe. Maybe they'd known the nobleman. The nobleman from John chapter 4. This nobleman, he was a royal official and he had a child that was sick and about to die. If you remember, he came to Jesus and he begged, please, please just, just heal my child. Heal my child. And Jesus didn't go to his house, but he looked at him in John 4.50 and he says to him, go your way. Your son lives. Remember the story? The nobleman came begging and Jesus looks at him and says, go your way. Your son lives. Had the story stopped there, it would have been pretty fantastic, but it continued. Because as the nobleman made his way home, it says that he believed the word Jesus spoke. So he had heard and he believed and he put action to it as he was headed home to see this. And as he was headed, if you remember, the servants came from the opposite direction and they met him part way. And they said, nobleman, master, your son lives. Your son lives. Immediately the nobleman said, at what hour did this happen? And they told him. And it was the same hour that Jesus had said, go your way. Your son lives. Maybe part of this group standing before him have been a part of that story. Maybe they've been a part of the crowd that followed Jesus to see what he was all about in the story in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. Maybe they had gathered with the multitude and followed Jesus around. Not really believing in him but wanted to get a first-hand view of what this was all about. What's the noise? Well, what are these people talking about? I'll, I'll just stay on the periphery, but I, I, I want to see with my own eyes what, what this man's all about. And, and if you remember the story of Matthew 14, Jesus had gone by a boat. He tried to get away from everybody, go over to the other side. He was going to hang out by himself. And it says that the multitude followed. They ran around this, this sea, and, and they gathered up there where he was. And it said when they gathered up, that Jesus had compassion. Don't you love the fact that Jesus has compassion? Don't you love the fact that he has compassion in his heart for us? And it says Jesus had compassion on the multitude and he healed their sick, is what it says in John in Matthew 14, 14. It says he healed their sick. But then the folks wouldn't go away. The folks wouldn't leave. 
night was falling, and here they were in the middle of nowhere, and they, they wouldn't go away. They, they just wouldn't leave. And now his compassion turned from healing them to their immediate need, which was hunger. Their immediate need was hunger. If you remember, he dispatched his disciples. He said, hey, go gather up all the food that you can. We got a whole host of folks here we got to feed. If you remember, they came back with a great big lunch of a few loaves and some fish. He said, hey, this is all that we've got. But if you remember, Jesus prayed over that, and they fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And at the end of the day, they gathered up a few baskets full to take home for the journey back across the sea. Maybe that group had been part of that. Maybe they'd seen Jesus take that sack lunch and make a buffet for thousands. Maybe, maybe part of that group that was gathered had walked past these ten men that in the past had always stood on the opposite side of the street and cried out, leprosy, leprosy, leprosy. Because there was ten of them that were covered in sores and they weren't allowed to get near anyone lest they infect them. Maybe they had passed these ten men after the men had met this man named Jesus. Maybe they had noticed the men no longer cried out. Maybe they noticed skin that was new, not covered with souls. Maybe, maybe they heard the one who proclaimed it was God who had healed him. Remember? The multitude, the, the, the host, the, the, the greatest number of those ten left without even a thank you. Maybe they had bumped into the one guy when he was asked, what happened to you? He said, Jesus. That's all I need to say is Jesus. But the question arises, why were all these things done by Jesus? Why did he do these things? Why did he heal people? Why was he raising people to death? Why was he feeding hungry stomachs and healing bodies? Why? Was it because he felt sorry for them? Well, it says he had compassion. Yes, he did. He had compassion on him. Was it because he wanted to show off? (laughs) Some say yes. No, Peter makes it plain. Peter makes it plain to us in his description of them why. Why he did these things. He said, a man attested by God to you by miracles. What is a miracle? What is a miracle? There's some things said that there there aren't miracles today. We know there, there are miracles today. We have one sitting in the room with us. We know that there are miracles. God's still in the healing business. God's still in the miracle business because the greatest miracle that God has ever done for me is to save me from being a sinner and place me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's still in the miracle business. But what is a miracle? It's a supernatural work. It's something that cannot be explained by either reason or science. It's, it's something attributed to a divine agency is the way it's, it's defined if you look it up in the dictionary. It start, he started with those things that they had witnessed that they, they could not explain away. He said that there was these miracles. You saw them with your eyes. You heard. You saw the lepers that one day were crying out, stay away from me, I'm full of leprosy. And the next day, they're clean. He said, you, you've seen it. In fact, many standing there might have been a part of the, of the group that, that even attributed that these miracles that Jesus did was the work of Beelzebub or Baal or Satan or one of the other gods, if you remember. They didn't deny the fact that he had power to do the things, but they even tried to attribute it to some other god, if you remember. said, yeah, sure, he does that, but that's basically Satan at work. <laughs> See, but Jesus did these miracles... <laughs> 
to attest to the fact that he was God. <laughs> that he, he was God. That he was who he says he is. It also gives us a glimpse, if you stop and think about it, about the new heaven and the new earth. When you look at these miracles. See, there's a lot of reasons I look forward to a place called heaven. Some of those reasons being there'll be no more disease. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more hunger. There'll be none of those things. But the greatest of things is the fact that there will be Jesus. There will be Jesus. He, he points, even through the miracles, to what it's going to be like for us when we're called home. <laughs> so Peter talks about these miracles. Knowing they had seen, heard, been a part of those miracles. He moves from miracles over to wonders. Well, what's the difference between a miracle and a wonder? <laughs> Well, a miracle is those things that are done that can't be explained by reason or science, and wonder is the reaction to those things. The reaction is the reaction to the miracle. It's the amazement that people have over what they've just witnessed. And you have to admit, when you see a person that is lying dead for days in a tomb come forth, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, wonderment is a pretty good way to put it. There would be a certain amount of amazement at what had just happened. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus, do you remember Nicodemus? <laughs> Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3, said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. There was this wonderment around the things that Christ did, these miracles. When a miracle happens, wonder should follow pretty quickly on its heels. And the wonders point to the third thing that Peter mentions, signs. Never disconnect those things. There were miracles that brought amazement or wonderment, and there was a sign in each of us. What's a sign? We have signs all around us today. We have road signs. We have billboards. We have store signs. We post signs on the bulletin board to let you know about things that are coming up. Why, why do we have all these signs? What, what's a sign for? A sign is to point us to something. If there's a detour, the sign says detour this way. If there's three lanes on the highway and you need to be in the right-hand lane to go to this place, there's a sign saying being in this lane if you want to go this way. A sign points to something. Peter takes all the things that they knew to be true about Jesus and tells them that they are a sign that points them to God. All of those things, those miracles, the wonderment that you had are all a sign that should point you to God. Peter puts it this way in that 22nd verse, man attested by God. He said the signs that, came, that brought such wonderment to you because there were miracles done were one thing. They were a testament of God about this man because it should point you to the fact that he is God. He's telling them and us that these things Jesus did on earth was God attesting through the fact that Jesus was this Messiah that the Jews had been waiting on. He was the Savior that came. He was God's Son wrapped up in flesh and set upon this earth. He was the one that they'd been looking for and the one that we'd better be looking for. And then he places the accountability for this Jesus of Nazareth, who did these miracles that brought wonderment and had a sign that pointed to God, he places the accountability of what they did with this man right squarely upon their shoulders. When he says in the latter part of that 22nd verse, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know 
him. He says there's no denying it. <laughs> there's no denying it. There's no ducking the truth <laughs> that Jesus is God in flesh. You saw the miracles. You were amazed at it. You know the signs pointed to an almighty God. You saw it. He was done in your midst. God did it through him in your midst for a reason. So that you'd be accountable. So that you'd be accountable and you'd know there was a God. You'd be accountable to the almighty God. He placed it. There's, there's no duck in the truth. There's no duck in the truth that he was the one that they'd been waiting on. The one. And after setting the foundation about those things that were true about who Jesus is, as confirmed by miracles, wonders, and signs, Peter moves to the purpose of why God sent him. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. He says there were these miracles, wonders, and signs done in your presence. Now you're accountable for what? I'm about to say. He had told them to listen, that there needed to be response to what they heard. And he says, it's backed up by the fact that what I'm about to tell you is about this Jesus who has been proven in your midst to be God and sent by God. <laughs> and now he's going to make them accountable. <laughs> he's going to make them accountable. He set this foundation. And now he talks about the purpose in verse 23. In verse 23, he starts off with the word, him. Him. That points back to the Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, the one who brought wonderment, the one who was a sign that there is a God and that He is God and God had sent Him. He says this Him. Him, Jesus. He says being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. <laughs> Peter starts his message about this Jesus. At the sovereignty of God. What, what an awesome thing. He said it's the sovereignty of God that sent this Jesus. His coming. It's even the sovereignty of God at his death upon this earth. He starts at the beginning with them. Placing what God did first before them. And you'll see in a few minutes. Brings in their responsibility into the whole picture. He says this was God's plan. Understand. God didn't sit around heaven one day and decide the earth is so corrupt, I think I need to find a lamb to send down there. He didn't say, have I got any volunteers? No. Before God ever spoke the first thing that you and I see into existence in this world, He had already planned to send His only begotten Son on your behalf. It was God's plan. He says, it was His determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He already knew that this was about to happen. They should have seen this from the scriptures of Old Testament. Most of those that were gathered were Jews. They were there in that place because it was a Passover. They were coming to do this celebration of the Passover. Think about what, it just hit me. Think about where the Passover is. They were there to celebrate Passover, which is a lamb who's slain, his, his blood is spilled out for the remission of their sins. They should have known. They should have known and made the connection. They should have made the connection that the sacrifice was talked about in the Old Testament. And it was talked about in particular about one that they'd have been very familiar with, Father Abraham. Remember Father Abraham from back in Genesis? Back in Genesis 22, it tells of the confirmation of Abraham's faith in this God. 
This God, this God who had told Abraham when he was childless that look at the sand on the seashore, Abraham, you're going to have descendants that outnumber that. Abraham, look up, Abraham. See the stars are in heaven. I know you don't have a child now, but Abraham, through you is going to come more descendants of yours than there are stars in the heavens. He had said to Abraham, I am God, and this is what I say, and this is what's going to happen. And Abraham believed him. And if you remember the story, Abraham had a child first. He tried to do it his own way. He had a child, not by his wife, but someone. Then, then his wife gave him a child. He had this, this child. If you remember, his name was Isaac. This, this child. God comes to Abraham one day. And he says, Abraham, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to do something. This is something that you need to do, Abraham. And he says, here I am, God. What is it? He says, I want you to take your son Isaac. I want you to take some wood. I want you to take some fire. And I want you to head to a place that I will let you know about. It's Mount Moriah. And I want you to take him up on this mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him. Here's a man that had no children till this one came along. Here's a man that saw no future for his lineage. And now the only one that he had, God said, I want you to lay him on the altar and sacrifice him. No explanation. We don't even see an argument from Abraham in Scripture. Did you notice that? If you go back and read that this afternoon, I hope you will. Chapter 22, book of Genesis. There was no argument. Abraham takes and they load up the wood onto the donkeys. He takes a few of the servants with him. He takes uh, Isaac with him. He takes the, the fire with him and they head out and they get to the base of the mountain. He tells the servants, you stay here. You watch these donkeys. He takes the wood. He places it on the back of his son. He says, my son and I will be right back. Now God had told him, you're going to sacrifice him on the mountain. He looked at the servants and said, y'all hang out right here. We'll be right back. We will be right back. <laughs> and he marches himself up to the top of the mountain. He takes that wood and they lay it out. They make an altar up there on top of the wood. He takes his son. He binds him and he places him upon the altar. See the picture? He's standing on the mount with which he was sent, with an altar which he was told to build with his son, which God had promised would come through him, his bloodline, millions and millions. Their latest son. Without the slightest protest or argument, he reaches into his belt, he extracts his knife, and he raises it over his head to plunge it into his son's heart. <laughs> you know the story in the 11th verse of chapter 22, some of the most beautiful words I'm sure Abraham had ever heard. He heard this voice say, Abraham, Abraham! <laughs> and Abraham very quickly, I said, I'm sure said, here I am. <laughs> here I am, right over here, it's me. God says to him, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And when Abraham looked, there stuck in the thicket was a ram for sacrifice. God's way of saying, I will provide for you. A sacrifice. And that's exactly what Abraham named that place on Mount Moriah is the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. 
these Jews that were gathered there as Peter stood up to speak. And, and he's saying, this, this man who came to attest by miracles, wonders, and signs is that sacrifice that God said he would provide. And you guys should know it. See, what he said, he sent him predetermined that he would die. They should have known. They should have known. Peter told them, God will provide is what he's saying in this message. God in his sovereignty and had predetermined to provide for them and us a sacrifice for our sins. Why? Because there is not one of us that can let alone die for ourselves or anyone else. And that sacrifice is Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he's telling them in this message. He starts at the very basis. Peter starts. Peter starts with the sovereignty of God and his son coming, even in the death of his son. And then he moves. Then he moves to the responsibility of man. Because see, like I told you way back in Ephesians, salvation is a parallel set of tracks. On one side is God's plan. On the opposite side is man's responsibility. And man is responsible. How do we know that? Peter even says here, God predetermined that his son would die, but man is responsible for killing him. For it says in Acts uh, 2.23, it says, Him, being delivered by the determined purpose of foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. This is where the shouting started in my office yesterday. See, the Jewish people could not have fathomed that a Messiah would come and die. No. They saw the Messiah coming to reign, to rule and to reign, to drive out those forces that were there now that were overseeing them and, and were holding them back. They saw this Messiah coming in with a, an iron sword to take over. They couldn't in their father's imagination think that there would be a Messiah that would come and die. What kind of Messiah is that? Now Peter says, not only did he die, you did it. Could you imagine the shock? They couldn't believe that a Messiah would die, much less that they would be a part of it. But he's looking him in the eye and said, you have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified. You have put to death. Jesus didn't die a victim of the people. He died a victor for the people. And even though God had planned this from the beginning of time, it was carried out by those who were gathered there. Those Romans who were in charge of the government. Those Pharisees. Those Sadducees. Those Jewish people who cried out for his crucifixion. Peter makes it clear to them that they were responsible for his death. There's no passing the buck. The buck stops there on them. And he reminds them that it was a transgression of the very law that they held so tightly to that placed an innocent man upon a cross. What a beautiful picture. He says the thing that you were willing to die for, you twisted to put an innocent man on a cross. When we read this, we need to understand that this doesn't just apply to those standing in front of Peter. No. The responsibility for the death of Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is laid at your feet. 
It is laid at your feet. It's as if we were standing in that crowd in John 19 where they were screaming, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. It's as if when they were offered a choice, they said, We'll take Barabbas, kill Jesus. It's as if we had on the sandals and the robe and stood in that crowd that day. It's as if we had the nails in our hands and drove them in the hands and the feet of Christ with the hammer ourselves. It's as if that spear that was thrust into his side was thrust there, pushed there by the power in our muscles. When Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, it makes us responsible. It makes us part of that crowd. It makes us stand at the foot of the cross and mock that Jesus. See, I realize it's my sin that drove the nails in his hands. It is my sin that shoved the crown of thorns into his head. It is my sin that swung the whip that tore the flesh from his body. It is my sin that caused him to hang upon a cross and be separated from his almighty father because of my sin. And guess what? It's your sin that did the exact same thing. See what Peter says. You have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified. You have put him to death. He might as well have been standing in this pulpit this morning. Talking to all of us. For it is us. It is us. Who crucified Jesus. God in his sovereignty decided that his son would die in my place. But it was my sin that made him have to make that decision. Each of us is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. It is our sin that put him there. So the question this morning is, have you come to the point in your life that you realize you're responsible? Have you come to the point that you realize he hung upon a cross because of you? Not just for you, but because of you. Do you see the sin in your life that drove the nails and the feet in the hands of Jesus? Do you see that sin? Do you feel the roughness of the sin spear? That pierced the side of our Lord and our Savior in your hands this morning. Have you ever fallen? Have you ever fallen at the foot of the cross and begged forgiveness for that sin? See, if you don't see your sin as nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, you don't realize that you've sinned. 
It's not a casual, I've done something wrong against God. No, you killed his son. Why do we need forgiveness? <laughs> because we killed his son. We need to come to that cross and ask for that forgiveness. It's not a time to be flippant. It's not a time to say, Pastor, I think I have. Are you willing to take a chance? Are you willing to take a chance to stand before Jesus one day and see the nail pierced hands? knowing that you drove the nails in those hands and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I asked for forgiveness. I'm pretty sure that I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm pretty sure when I was a child I did that. Or, or even as one told me this week, Pastor, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. If this word of God doesn't so penetrate your heart this morning that you want to do one of two things, you've never come to the point of knowing what your sin did. One of those things is to fall at the foot of the cross and beg for forgiveness. Beg for forgiveness because you realize the weight of your sin is still squarely upon your shoulders, never having been removed because Jesus Christ has become your Lord and Savior. You've never recognized, maybe till this morning, that you've sinned, as all of us have, against an almighty God. That the wages of that sin is eternal death at a place called hell, separated from the one who outstretched his arms on a cross on your behalf. But thank God that the gift of God is eternal life through his son Jesus Christ, because he so loved us that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him places their trust in him, recognizes the fact that they sin, and fully trust him for what he did for them shall have eternal life. And then, having believed that in your heart, that you have stood and confessed that He is your Savior and your Lord. If that moment's never happened in your life, where you know for certain, not a past thought, not a, yeah, I think it happened, no, for certain. If you don't know for certain, are you willing to take that chance this morning? I'm not. That's one response. That's one response to the word. It's salvation. Coming. Coming to the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ and saying, I want you as my Lord and Savior. I put my full trust in you and want forgiveness of my sins through what you did on the cross for me. Response number one. Second response for those who know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not talking about the day. I'm not talking about what you're wearing. I'm not talking about what the preacher preached on that night. I'm talking no for certain in your heart that if you die today, your eyes will open and you will be looking at your Lord and Savior, not regretting having not dealt with your sin, but glad that you did because you're in the presence of your Lord and Savior forever. If you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, what is the second response? The second response is to realize, yes, you've been forgiven of sin, but there has been sin in your life since that you need to repent of. But you also need to rejoice and just thank God from a weeping heart. Forgive it, His only begotten Son, to you to drive nails in His hands and pierce the side that your sins may be forgiven. Response one, come to Christ to be saved. Response two, if you're saved, is to come and worship Him. This is the point yesterday that I couldn't continue. 
I couldn't continue because there was an overwhelming flood in my heart of the salvation of Jesus Christ and the cost of that salvation. We're going to do something different this morning. Johnny, there should be a disc back there that has piano music on it if you'll put it in this morning. And you can turn it on as soon as you do. I'm not going to ask you to stand and sing. I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to respond. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you meet me right down here. Because guess what? You're now responsible. You're responsible for what you do with that Jesus Christ. Do you leave him alone and walk away facing eternal death? Or do you accept him as your Lord and Savior and have eternal life? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.